Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. I'm Cassandra Harpley, your host for this episode, a contributor to the podcast and the Critical Design Lab, and an assistant professor of anthropology and health humanities at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I sit down with three of the organizers of the Cripping the Arts Symposium, which took place in Toronto, Ontario in late January of 2019. At the table were Eliza Chandler, a professor of disability studies at Ryerson University and a curator and art maker. Lindsay Fisher, an artist, designer, curator, and director of the Toronto-based nonprofit Creative Users. And Sean Lee, director of programming at Tangled Art and Disability and a performance art creator. The episode was recorded at the gallery space of Tangled Art and Disability. It's a high-ceilinged, brick-walled art gallery in a retrofitted warehouse building in Toronto full of arts organizations, and the acoustics of that space are part of the interview you're about to hear. You'll also notice as you listen that because we have four separate voices in the conversation, the dynamics of the discussion are a little different than our usual back-and-forth podcast format. For the most part, each of the speakers has a quite distinctive voice, but if you're not sure who's speaking, you can find out by following along in the transcript, and as much as possible, we've edited the episode to help you distinguish between voices. Finally, if you've been listening to Contra this season, by now you'll have heard the news that the Critical Design Lab, the collective that makes this podcast, also has a new project in the works in collaboration with Tangled Arts and Disability. So if you're curious about the timeline, that project, Crip Ritual, came about after the interview you're about to hear was recorded early last year. All right, let's dive in. So I guess we'll start from the beginning with the story behind the symposium, Cripping the Arts. A three-day event at the Waterfront Centre in Toronto, including panels and performances, which has just concluded. So how did Cripping the Arts come about as an event, and what was the impetus that brought it all together? Sean, let's start with you. So Cripping the Arts really originated when Eliza Chandler was the artistic director um, in 2016, and it was really a uh, a monumental uh, moment in which uh, creators and gatekeepers were connected. At least that was from my perspective. Um, and the, 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 I think the second iteration was really about bringing the conversation to the next level. So often I've seen um, conferences, symposiums, and different um, workshops. And um, oftentimes it's about starting at the ground level anytime that the mainstream is sort of brought into the fray. Um, and to me, the second iteration of Cripping the Arts really meant that uh, we could go from the conversations that had begun to percolate from the first one. And it allowed us to think with some nuance around some of the things that have developed. Like, 
For instance, I was on the panel for disability arts leadership. And I think we got to talk about not just the successes of um, a disability-led um, arts organization um, like, like Tangled. Tangled is, I believe, the first disability-led arts organization in Canada. And we got to talk about both the successes and um, the kind of interesting interdependent ways that leadership has kind of organically formed, but also the failures. And it was a good moment to think about how disability-led movements might also exclude others um, from participating, how it might have definitions that, when applied, make us less flexible. And um, we had a really wonderful moment um, that uh, engaged and centered uh, Indigenous, Black, people of color, um, communities within uh, the frameworks of disability. And I think that was a much needed conversation that had begun in the first Cripping the Arts. That is a conversation that um, has kind of come to its next level and we can begin to think about other aspects of uh, what does it mean to you know lead uh, with difference. I think that means that we have to think about those, def those very definitions of um, madness, of deafness, of disability, and how, um, how we identify with it politically and how we identify with it uh, artistically and curatorially. So that's kind of my entryway into that, that in, into Cripping the Arts. It was just a moment, I think, for us to, to be nuanced about disability and to not start from the first place. Sean, um, I'm glad you brought in this idea of disability-led arts. You mentioned it during one of the panel discussions at Cripping the Arts, and it stayed with me. And I wonder, could you say a bit more about what you mean by disability-led and why that's important to you and to the spirit of Cripping the Arts? And also to all of you, is there a kind of consensus about the phrase disability arts? Uh, where does that term come from and what does it mean for each of you? And also, you mentioned the phrase disability aesthetics. Is there an aesthetic that defines disability arts? I, I think what I'll start with is thinking about that, that square one sort of situation. Because I think, you know, starting at square one has its advantages. But I think what we, we need to do is recognize how... Um, movements grow, and I, I think about the parallels that emergences of, of like queer arts and feminist arts have towards that relationship. Mm -hmm. That when it's led by the community, when it's championed, and and really uh, at that kind of ground level, then it grows and it be begins to get picked up by the mainstream. It doesn't, uh, and 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 you know, it doesn't start at the beginning all the time. Whereas disability because the very concept of disability as, as a political identity is still, I think, really fresh and new, a lot of folks come at it from the medical model without understanding uh, how this is art rooted in like social practice and rooted as a movement, activist movement. And um, so to me, it has to play a number of roles. Sometimes if it's the first and only thing that someone comes into. It needs to still be accessible to a degree. But I think that doesn't mean we should sacrifice the place that it's gone to. I think we need to account for the ways that uh, 
and it's that's that's sort of the most complicated part is how do we keep that conversation going while still being being invitational because i think of how my in my own arts education like i didn't i didn't learn about tangled i didn't learn about disability arts but i did learn about feminist arts i did learn about queer arts um black arts and the way in which uh like those movements have formed and i i kept trying to draw parallels in my own uh, practice to how uh, it, within my kind of many intersecting identities something could be built from there and so to be able to enter into disability arts at a time when disability arts was being picked up I think was really an incredible opportunity but I want other you know artists coming into this to be able to come in from that same you know education level of just not really knowing what disability arts is, but it still does need to evolve, right? So that's sort of where I think I've been grappling with how do we start? And taking an intersectional lens has really helped in that it allows us to think about how those other movements have led um, with difference and we can apply those, some, some of those, um, you know, educational and uh, kind of standards that other spaces have developed to our own. Lindsay, you look like you have something to add here. It's, you know, it's just making me think about, like, just saying it over and over and over again, disability arts, disability arts. Mm. I'm taking a risk by saying this, and I might call you in a week and tell you not <laughs> to put this in. But I've never identified with disability arts. Um, and I, like, mm-hmm. personally, like, I came into disability arts because I, you know, learning um, about, like, 70s, 80s performance art, mm-hmm. Marina Abramovich, and I identify with, with that um, um, way of work. Her work, to me, was about death and about, like, vulnerability and about aging and about disability. It was about that, to me, and, and I think... And um, and that's why I have such a hard time, um, you know, drawing a line around disability arts and saying that is disability arts or that isn't disability arts. And and I say that even though I am working in disability arts and, and I do call myself in some spaces a disability artist. Um, and it's just an ongoing kind of conversation mm-hmm. I have in my head. Uh, yeah. What does that bring up for you, Eliza? Yeah, I think that it's a really, like, speaking, as I rarely do, but, like, from a disability studies perspective or, like, a critical theory perspective, I think we're, you know, at, at this moment right now when we're sort of shifting away from identity politics and assuming that there's a singular experience of an identity that brings you into a movement or a culture in a similar way or an intersecting way. So I think, Lindsay, like, for a long time I was really adamant that, like, disability arts was a thing, it was a culture to be protected, it was a politic. Um, But now, like, I'm reminded when um, Deirdre Logue had her show at Tangled a few years ago, and Deirdre, I think, would... identify as a queer feminist artist. She's a co-founder of the Feminist Art Gallery and has been making work for a number of years, so many years, in fact, that 
the show at Tangled was a, a collaborative show with other galleries in this building, and it was a retrospective of Deirdre's um, life's work. Um, and I, rem- I was here when, when that was curated, and we decided to curate that. And I remember there were questions from the public about why her show was in the gallery. Did she identify as, as um, disabled or deaf or mad? Um, but it was really clear for me um, that her work, as you're saying about Marina Abramovich, was about disability, and she and I had conversations about this. And her her work is about doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And to me, that's, that's interrogating one's relation, non-normative relationship with the world, and how for some bodies... Um, Entering into the world is an easy, unquestioned process, and for others it's not. And I think that is a disability politic to think about that. And the other way, Deirdre integrated accessibility into her work. Because that was a requirement of Tango, that the work be accessible, but she uses that as a creative and impetus. I think it does relate to gripping the arts, actually, because the conference was not called Disability Arts. It was called Cripping the Arts, using gripping as a verb, as we all do, following Kelly Fritch. You know, it's about desiring the disruption that disability makes. And so I think for Deirdre, I don't want to speak on her behalf, but Rather than sort of slap on some access features at the end or not at all, she worked with uh, deaf and hard of hearing artist David Bobier to create vibrating extensions of her video. So there was one video in which she was biting a balloon until it popped. And you can imagine the sort of the sound of that and, and the anxiety that that act and the sound would produce, which might not easily be translated through a caption that said squeak, squeak, or even an audio description that said she's biting a balloon, looked down, it burst, right? And um, instead, or on top of having both of those things, which the, the work did have, they, she, um, Deirdre and David Bobier collaboratively built this plump that you could sit on while watching the video and it vibrated with the sound um, of that work. And I think sitting on the plinth, for me, changed the way that I experienced that work. So I don't know, like, you know, I don't know how Deidre identifies in her mind and her body, but to me that, like, really fits in with the grip culture and fits in with this desiring the disruption the disability makes um, in a proactive way and a sort of taking that up as a creative invitation. I think when we, maybe when we reframe the conversation um, as a conversation about gripping the arts, then we're not sort of requiring people to pin themselves down mm-hmm. in an identity, which as we learned from the Indigenous and Race panel, even the word disability doesn't easily fit into an indigenous lexicon or worldview. And even even the, sort of the idea that, you know, we rail against the medical system, as, as I do, 
requires that first I have access to that medical system and Mona Stonefisher, the elder for the event, and Sky Stonefisher both on that panel and made really astute comments about how access to medical care is an is a matter of justice. And that's I mean, I think that that disrupts our 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 disability politic to the core. So so not requiring people to identify and not requiring people to take up a similar politic as 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 you're saying, as sort of the the disability politics existed in the sixties, seventies and eighties, I think if we're listening to that intergenerational knowledge like I even have to admit that like yeah, I, I think a lot of my ideas around having disability as a core have changed even since the last equipping the arts because because of these intersectional conversations and because of the ways that access has become, as you're saying, more a cultural consideration um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than a logistic concern. It, it can help us sort of um, ground our movement in something cultural rather than biological. And also just that disability is in, it's part of all of us. It's not, it's not us and them. It's not, you know, we are, you are or you're not disabled. It, I, I believe, and I think that Deirdre, uh, you know, explaining that show, the value and the, the politic and the, um, is in the relationship, is in the, the, the learning, it's in the, the, the back and forth, it's the conversations, it's the experiencing, theory experiencing what disability is by incorporating biotechnology technology or, or being open to, I mean, we all will, if, if we aren't already, we will be quote-unquote disabled eventually. I mean, so then it, you start to think about what this disability means. To me, I think this also comes down to developing crip aesthetics because to me, Deirdre's exhibition yes. very clearly had queer aesthetics. And that means, I think, when you're entering into the queer community, there are ways that you come in and you really recognize that this is a space that's, um, that is yours culturally and has been made for you and is you're represented on these spaces. And that hasn't been what disability has uh, typically had. And so uh, I, I, I agree to an extent that the identity, um, the, some of the identity politics in which disability is sort of has created um, are really ways in which some that might actually exclude a lot of people from being within that narrative. But at the same time, I, I want to be conscious of how, uh, how when we're creating a culture, when, for example, we create, uh, you know, queer aesthetics, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that everybody has to identify as queer in this one way. I think queerness has been very successful because it's had this flexibility and it's had this um, sort of, uh, it's had like an agenda to basically disrupt. And that's queer, that's, that's crip as well. And so, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's many ways in which we can navigate this. We have to think about folks who are just entering in and 
who don't have some of the language that has developed, right? Um, and then there's people who have been in this conversation. There's that intergenerational com. Uh, there's the intergenerational conversation, and then there's the conversations that have been percolating within academia, and so there's all this complexity in which we, when we're thinking about disability arts, like, are we thinking of it as, you know, when, when you hear the word disability arts, some might hear it from kind of a medical model, some might hear it from the, the academic model, some might hear it from an activist model, some might think of it as, um, as just a culture. And so as we develop these crip aesthetics, then maybe we can let go of some of those um, ways in which we've clung on to uh, more normative ways of defining disability and madness and deafness, mm-hmm. right? I, I guess that kind of addresses that crip mm-hmm. aesthetic mm-hmm. <laughs> question mm-hmm. a little. So I love how all of these examples are drawing out the way that disability arts as a phrase is potentially essentializing or exclusionary as an identity category, but that there's this possibility for a kind of important opening in terms of disrupting expectations about what art does and whom it interpolates. Um, so that cripping the arts as an idea is about a crip aesthetic that understands accessibility as an exciting disruption and opportunity. One thing I noticed is that uh, there's some really interesting ways in tr- that you organized accessibility at the conference. Uh, there was a live stream so that folks at home who couldn't attend in person could follow along and an access guide with a glossary. Can you talk more about the aesthetics of the access and how you were thinking about accessibility in planning the conference? I think that we all approach accessibility as more than a solution to a problem, but as something that's iterative and um, a, a combination of best practices, but also um, historical knowledge, what worked and what didn't, and and asking people what they need, um, but telling people what we preemptively thought about and asking them to add to that, but also having things like an access team on site whose purpose is to not only communicate the access, but also be flexible and be responsive to the inevitable access needs that we haven't thought about in our planning. So, you know, it's a a bit of a back and forth. but I think something that we really that I really learned in planning all of this is how to communicate access and how to communicate what what we planned for and the opportunity that that brings. So the first day um, when Lindsay presented on the first day, the the first day was about the impact of relaxed performance, um, which is a, a way of producing theater. Um, on the Canadian theater sector. Um, and I, I think we sort of early on, as we were planning the conference, we thought about adopting a, a principle of relaxed performance, which is creating a visual story, which is something that theaters have been doing to sort of orient a, an audience who might not have ever been to a theater before to what to expect, even like a brief on what theater culture is, what time to arrive, that there'll be an intermission, that you can eat, eat in the theater or not, things like that. So 
Um, Lindy has this great idea to adapt that um, model as our access guide. We decided to do it because we wanted everyone to know the access provisions that we provided so that, uh, you know, so that it was creating a welcoming and invitational um, introduction to the, the conference and even what a difference it makes when you don't have to ask will there be ASL or will there be audio description but that somebody has planned for you to come to the conference and has th- thought about your needs and, and done it already. Um, but, but it also gave us an opportunity to think about like, what is a conference? What kind of knowledge base do you have to have to know what you're getting? And it's not even a conference. That at one point it was called a symposium, which is even more obscure. What is it? What is a symposium? Uh, what does the building look like? What does the building look like with lots of people in it? What What are panels? Can you ask questions at a panel? Um, what is a moderator? knowing that a moderator is there to sort of contain and facilitate the discussion is a useful piece of information to know. And me, as someone who's been to lots of conferences, you know, I, I, I because of my experience, I know that. Um, but an earth worker or a community member or, you know, a new academic even might not know any of these languages. So, so to create the access guide uh, gave a really great opportunity to sort of unpick these normative assumptions of, of this imaginary knowledge base that we all have in common to, to state things um, and and to even think about what are, why do we have moderators? Is it necessary to have Q&A at every panel um, and things like that? And so we worked with Soul Express, who's a great, um, they're uh, an arts organization here in Toronto that work with folks labeled with cognitive disabilities and intellectual disabilities who came to the last um, grouping the arts and, and uh, part of their feedback was that it would have been great to have um, a sense of the language being used in the presentation. So we worked with them to develop this access guide and you'll see as part of it, as part of sort of what, what will come up during the, the symposium. We, we identified um, key terms that we thought might come up and then with, the, with lots of help um, designed a glossary of terms to think about that. And I mean, the fascinating thing is, of course, it's not about dumbing a concept down to some, some imaginary level of, of education. It's really us all over the holidays having these Google Doc conversations about what is cisgendered? What do we mean by genderqueer? Like, how is that different than gender fluid or trans identity? And how, how specifically does that relate to cisgender? What is a land acknowledgement? Do elders give land acknowledgement or do they do something else entirely? Is it a settler responsibility to do a land acknowledgement? How does that relate to the role of the elder? What is decolonization? How does that relate to um, transatlantic slave trades and indigenous uh, land? Like those are two different things that we mean when we can talk about decolonization. 
Then for me, as someone who sort of throws these words around all the time, to be forced to actually think about like what what I mean when I'm talking about this stuff, and to create some sort of definition, which you know they're not plain. There's nothing plain about the definitions that are created, but we try to really explain what we mean in in sort of jargon-free terms. And so I think um, that, again, is an example of how access is not a straightforward problem-solution equation. It really gives occasion to think really carefully about these sort of things that we might just assume. We might assume that everyone has the same experience of getting off the TTC into a Harborfront Center and same experience knowing what to wear in the morning to a, to a conference or whatever and the same experience of what decolonization means. So um, it was a great, it was great to work on that. I'm really, I think out of everything with Scripping the Arts, I'm like, I'm really proud of that. and. I think it, it will be a great template um, to give to people and to have people elaborate on and use with their own, with their own stuff. Wow, yes. Um, I agree that the Access Guide is a really phenomenal creation and such an ex- important example of what access can look like. And it also gets to something we've been talking about as a lab and on the podcast about uh, what it means to create access in these kinds of conference and knowledge sharing spaces um, as a kind of design for ways of being together. So, um, you know, I was just thinking back to sitting in the audience uh, at Cripping the Arts and really being cognizant of the amount of care and the amount of labor that went into producing an experience like that one. Um And so, I mean, in terms of thinking about the labor that goes into creating something like an access guide uh, for an intersectional conference, do you have any thoughts of what you might say to other people who might be resistant or scared or uh, kind of thinking about the first steps toward making a more accessible conference model for themselves? But I remember a really cool moment. I think it was on the first day when we were talking about relaxed performances and it, it, people in the audience kept saying, um, you know, ASL is really expensive, like, mm-hmm. understandable, like, it's beyond your budget, it really throws your, your budget akimbo, you know, all of these, this comment start, kept coming up and up and up, and, and then a, a great de- deaf activist, Sage Willow, was in the audience, and, um, and they said, you know, or they, they signed, of course, you know, stop with this. Like, we don't need our access to be a price point that's too high or unmanageable. Um, nobody in here is talking about how expensive the speakers are or how expensive the, the lights are or how expensive the chairs are in the room for all, all of you people who don't, don't come with your own chair. Like, like being in the space together is expensive and, and it does take care and to elevate some some ways of communicating and taking care as being extra or, you know, extreme to come back to this design language. So I guess the reason I raise that is because of, like, it is extra to create all this stuff, to think about this. Like, 
planning for the access was a huge part of it, of planning the symposium, which started at the very beginning as we were creating our budgets and, and pulling together the team. And we had uh, someone dedicated exclusively to coordinating the access. And, and I mean, that was a multifolded process um, that, that was in constant negotiation with the... Um, the artistic programming, the panelists, things like that. Um, I think what I would say to someone who was interested in thinking about this is that, you know, it will force you to think differently about the conference. You can't just sort of carry on the way that you've always planned a conference and, um, and hope that your inclusion of disabled people won't be disruptive. I mean, that's what we... We think about when we talk about desiring this disruption. Like, it will disrupt every single part of your process, including um, your ability to be spontaneous and, and sort of last minute about including an extra speaker or something. Or, you know, your panelists can't show up the day of and say, I have a video I want to show. Well, is that video captioned? Has the, has the audio describer seen the video? Do they know how to describe it in real time? Those are all kinds of considerations. So it's disruptive, I think, but but the, um, like, in that disruption, I think collectively you're really thinking about how bodies, um, how spaces are designed for all kinds of bodies and how different kinds of bodies receive and give information who is recognized as a leader and a knowledge producer. And, you know, by thinking about those things intentionally, um, I think you're just producing a different kind of um, knowledge and a different kind of way of receiving that knowledge, which is pretty exciting. If I were to say one thing to people, you know, organizing an event or something, is that one thing I've learned from Cripping the Arts and um, helping to organize it is that this, going back to failure, we embrace failure. It has to be a part of the process, is to be willing to fail and to be open to failing. And, um, and because, we, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but you only learn through failure. You only get better through failure. You only... Um, become more inclusive to failure. Wow, yes. I mean, there is this kind of courage in that isn't there. The idea that access is never finished, but an inchoate process and a set of relations. Uh, if it can never be perfect, it's always inherently about learning from these small or really big failures in order to make access better uh, this time or next time. So thanks for that, Lindsay. Um, I want to shift gears though now a bit back to these big picture questions that came up in the panel discussions during the event itself. And one that we alluded to briefly earlier uh, was on Sean's panel. There was this conversation about disability arts and how it so often feels stuck in this kind of introduction to disability culture mode or in academia, the disability studies 101 phase. Um, and in the context of the panel, it was, it was about what can be taken for granted um, 
in terms of a starting place and carrying knowledge forward. And that always has to do with the kind of received notions and broader cultural conceptions of an idea. I was teaching recently with an article that Eliza wrote in which you, Eliza, talk about an idea from a Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie lecture in what she calls the danger of a single story. And you write that disability arts isn't about representing disability in any one particular way, but about increasing the number and complexity and diversity of representations of disability that we all have access to collectively. Um, and it seemed to me that this idea has a lot to do with Cripping the Arts as a project, um, and that it was a theme that came up several times in the panel discussions. So I'm curious to all of you, uh, what is the single story of disability arts as you see it? Uh, so if there's sort of a way that you see disability in the arts normally getting reproduced in mainstream culture, mass media, or typical sort of arts funding and exhibition spaces, what is that and how might we think about it differently going forward? You know, when we think about disabled people, we often think of people disconnected as not coming together through a shared um, lived experience, um, as not being connected by cultural practices, language, humor. Um, and when I say cultural practices, I mean anything from knowing the best QPOC ASL interpreters to having straws at the bar table and, you know, and even knowing to include end times to all your events so that people can book through accessible transit, those kinds of cultural um, assumptions. So I think the single story of a, dis of a disability is that we're disconnected, we're not agentive, and we're not sort of celebrating the differences that disability makes. So disability arts, I think, doesn't replace that single story with another single story or a better single story or a more emancipated single story, but it really allows us all to to speak um, to speak about our own stories and our own experiences, and some of those might confirm a single story. Some might make our work about how they suffer through their disability or something like or how they're isolated because of disability or something like that. But in the multiplicity, I think, that self-authored and self-narrated, um, in the multiplicity that disability arts allows for, we can sort of, yeah, disrupt this single story. And I think the single story of disability art as you've been saying, um, is that it's, it's therapeutic, it's created um, for um, a cathartic experience or even a physical rehabilitative experience and learning, you know, fine motor skills or whatever it is. And then, and, and to, to understand that as, um, as, as the impetus behind the art disabled people create really divorces that art for any sort of um, intention, including aesthetic intention, political intention, um, an intention to be recognized as a professional uh, artist who exhibits and gets funded and all of that stuff. So I think disability art really speaks back to all of that. Um, but as a, an artist, Gloria Swan, who was a tangled artist in residence, Gloria is a very politicized artist. She identifies as a mad black woman and, and talks about her madness as being the 
experience of being racialized and and living in a colonized city like Toronto and experiencing racial violence on the daily and and worrying about her her kids and her grandkids who might also be get coming into contact with police and police violence all of that she she talks about it as being um, mad inducing but she also talks about her artistic practice as being therapeutic and I remember when she was having an art, a show entangled writing that in her um, artist statement and I said you have to take that out we can't have that and she really spoke back to me and said yeah but it is therapeutic like who's to say that it's not therapeutic and political at the same time if I'm saying my madness is political, then I can say that my art is both therapeutic and political at the same time. And for me, that was a real learning moment of like, yeah, we're not just sort of running from this single story and claiming that art can never be therapeutic. I think what we're running from is that that, that's all and only it can ever be. And because of that, you know, we don't deserve to get paid or to have write-ups and in journals and stuff like that, which I guess is another single story of this. When, when we imagine that art, disability art, is only therapeutic and not anything other different, then we don't critically engage disability art in, in cultural, um, in art crits and reviews and things like that. Sean, you look like you want to jump in here. So Eliza, I think that example of um, Gloria's exhibition really speaks to some of the nuance that al- that is allowed in disability arts, right? For those who are participating in disability arts are simply doing so um, as part of a larger arts practice that they have. And I think one of the biggest issues is how folks get uh, put into uh, definitions, like well-defined boxes of, oh, this is a disabled artist who only makes disability art. Um, You know, the way you you mentioned how it doesn't allow for growth, it doesn't allow for criticism, it doesn't allow for critique and experimentation. And I think that is one of the biggest uh, faults of defining disability arts in such a strict single-story narrative, is that we can't be part of the canon as long as we are defined by that. So, you know, for me, disability arts is just one other movement. It's, you know, I fall back to this quote all the time, but um, in the UK, Yinka Shonabare talks about how he thinks of disability arts as the last avant-garde. And I love the way that situates disability arts, both within the canon and outside of it. Mm. So that allows us to both participate in the art world when we we need to, but also to engender new ways, new aesthetics of participating in it that might actually influence the art sector in in other ways. I also just want to think about the separated tiers in the art world, the way in which there is like, you know, the commercial sector in Canada, we, we have a very strong artist run center culture and nonprofit culture with public galleries that program art because it is a public good. And then there are, you know, institutions, academic institutions that participate in art. And so 
these are all ways in which disability arts has contributed to its to the growth overall of contemporary art. And so, yeah, I think we need more artists that are participating in different ways that help us think about uh, not only disability arts from a perspective of access, but as a way of creating culture, I guess. And and access can definitely be part of that culture, but it, it has to, I think, also be accessible from any uh, starting point. Um, this is amazing. And I feel like I could do an entire separate podcast in which we just talk about each of your own art practices and the projects that you're working on and what is coming next for the Cripping the Arts project uh, after the second conference. Um, but I think we'll leave it here for today. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what all of you do in the future and to continuing the conversation. So thanks for joining us on the Contra podcast. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.